important reasons to keep the Feast of Tabernacles is to give us a vision of what God has promised for the future. Because without this future vision, we would stay focused on this life only, as we heard about in the sermonette. Because there is much in each of our lives, every single one of our lives are just full with activities on which to be focused. Responsibilities such as going to school, going to work, paying the bills, performing home maintenance, doing laundry, washing dishes, changing diapers, changing the oil, raking leaves, mowing the lawn, shoveling snow. It's coming. You know it's coming. Sorry about that. It's the reality of this life. All the things we know which must be done. And your life is full of those things. And additionally, there are all the many relationships in which we are involved, such as being children, siblings, parents, friends, co-workers, classmates, and brethren. All those different relationships and how they work together in addition to our responsibilities and obligations. But besides all that, we all fill the rest of our lives with me time, right? The things we'd rather do, (laughs) the things we take time for, the things we enjoy as personal diversions such as hunting or knitting or making crafts or playing an instrument, painting, playing or watching sports, cruising the web, watching YouTube, posting on Instagram or keeping up with their streaks on Snapchat, all those things. We fill our time with all of those things, the rest of our time. In short, our present lives tend to keep us tied to the here and now. We are involved and engaged with the here and now. And that's why it's not only good, it is vital that God commands his people to literally get away from all that to come together to focus on what he has planned for us in the future. Because without this time to step out of our daily lives, our everyday lives which are filled to the brim, over time, we would be consumed with the here and now. Eventually, there would be very little difference between us and the rest of the world in which we are focused on what we're focused on. We'd be just like them. And unfortunately, too often we are. So it is incredibly important for those who have been called out of this world to catch the vision of the future God reveals through this feast. And so with all that in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 to begin the sermon. 1 Corinthians 2, a very familiar scripture to all of us. Verse 9, this scripture is going to be the basis of this sermon. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. Breaking into the thought that Paul is writing about here, he says, But as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You can, and I believe that we should, Read this as a promise of God to you and me. A promise that what God has prepared for those who love him, which I hope is us, is so amazing that it can't be completely comprehended. The things which God has prepared for those who love him, I has not seen. You've not seen it, nor has your ear heard it, nor have entered into your heart which can also be translated as the mind. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. But notice something very important about this promise. It will be fulfilled in the future. It isn't here yet. In other words, this life, this life that we are so tied to, is not it. No matter how good it can be, no matter how much we love it, No matter how much we're getting out of it, this is not what this is talking about. This life is not what this is talking about. It's talking about the future. I believe one of the reasons it is so hard for us to fathom what God has prepared for us 
is because this life is all we know. This is all we've experienced, every single one of us. It's, it's what we can relate to. And because our lives are filled and overflowing with responsibilities and relationships and personal pursuits, all we have going on in our daily lives makes it difficult for all of us to even have the time to consider what God has prepared for the future. And that's why it's so important to step out of our normal lives, to get away from that, to come together in a place which he chooses and take the time during this feast to consider this promise that what he has in store for us is so much better than the best day in this life that we can't even comprehend it. And one of the primary messages of the Feast of Tabernacles is it pictures the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. We'll hear about that over and over as we've already heard about that. The fulfillment of the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords with the resurrected saints ruling with him, and hopefully that's us. But all of that, all of that is yet future. Not a single one of us has lived it yet. Therefore, I has not seen, nor ear heard this phase of God's plan yet. And it's a very good thing that we'll hear many different aspects this week of the fulfillment of what this feast pictures. But I want to center this message on what it takes for us to keep the promise of God in our hearts right now in our lives today. As we continue to live with the obligations of this life, which are so full. In other words, how to balance living now, which probably will not change all that significantly. No matter what is said at the feast, we will continue to have full lives with all those obligations that I talked about. But how do we balance living now yet embrace the future promise? How do we do that? Because we are not the first of God's people to deal with this challenge, as we heard in the special music. Therefore, it's helpful for us to know how others before us, our spiritual forefathers, successfully did it in their lives. So today we're going to focus on how to keep our hearts, in our hearts, the promise of what God has prepared for us while we continue to live our lives now. We're going to use the examples of our spiritual forefathers to see three keys to how they successfully handled the challenge of living their lives while keeping God's future promises in mind, because they did the same thing. They lived their lives, and their lives were full too. They had their obligations, but yet they kept their hearts on the future promises. After we look at that, then we'll consider the promises that God has prepared for those who love him. No matter how wonderful or how disappointing this life is, it it is important that we are convinced that this life is not what it's all about. This feast points to a much brighter future that is worth striving for, worth reaching for. Yet we aren't there yet. But it is part of the promises God has revealed to us through these holy days. The title of this sermon is, I Has Not Seen. That's (laughs) E-Y-E. I Has Not Seen. So to learn how our spiritual forefathers successfully handled the challenge of living their lives while keeping God's future promises in mind, let's turn to Hebrews 11 and let's start in verse Eight. In fact, you might want to keep your ribbon here in Hebrews 11 because it's going to be uh, often quoted. Hebrews 11, you know it as the faith chapter. Hebrews 11, and let's read verse 8. We're going to start with the example of Abraham. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham in, obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, there's a lot there, and we heard about it in the special music. But this was what God told Abraham to do. But to get the context, let's go back to where he told him this in Genesis 11. 
And hopefully you'll keep your ribbon there in Hebrews 11. But uh, let's go to Genesis 11 to see the story of how this came about. And let's start in verse 27. Genesis 11 and verse 27. And we'll read verses 27 through 32. Genesis 11, verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So that was their homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans. Then it says in verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, Sarai, and she had no children. And Terah took his sons, son Abram, and grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his uh, son Abram's wife, and they went, went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan, and they dwelt, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So, the reason I wanted to read this, it's not important all of the names and the, and the places and all that. What I want to, you to focus on is that it establishes how entrenched Abram was in his living situation. That he had family, and this family was probably a small city. That they were just relatives all over the place. And this was the life he knew for so long. In fact, going to Genesis 12 and verse 1, we see... This seems to be the first encounter that he had with God. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So he tells him to extract himself from the only life that he had known. But notice what he told him to do. Get out of your country from your family, which Jesus Christ said would be one of the biggest challenges for anyone. To love him more than father, mother, sister, brother, your closest relatives. He told Abram, I want you to get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. To extract yourself from everything you have known. All that is comfortable. And this was Abram's first test of faith. In Genesis 12 verse 4 says that Abram was 75 years old. When he made this move. So that is a long time to be entrenched in a certain lifestyle. And around certain people. You're very comfortable by that point. And think about that. Living 75 years, which is more than many of us in this room today. Living 75 years among your family is a very long time. And then you're told to leave them. This was the only life he had ever known. And now God was calling Abram to extract himself from this life. In Hebrews 11 and verse 8, you don't have to go back there. It says, he went out not knowing where he was going. And as it says here in verse 1 in Genesis 12, to a land that I will show you. Now imagine the faith that this required. Oftentimes we just read right past this and think it's no big deal. But if any of us were asked to do this, it would be a very big deal, especially after 75 years. In fact, there are many, many people who believe the truth, who hear it, believe it, but will not follow it because of family. So it is a big deal. Picture yourself as Abram here, packing up all your stuff, leaving your home, but only having a vague idea of where you're moving. Now, husbands, imagine telling your wife that your family is moving, but you don't know, exa- you don't know exactly where. That you heard this voice tell you, I want you to move away from your family. And that you're going to do it. Imagine how that would go with your wife. Well, notice God's direction, though, included a promise. Verse 2, Genesis 12 and verse 2. God said to Abram, 
I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So attached to him doing this was a blessing. Now, there's nothing wrong to expect a reward to demonstrating faith. In fact, let's go back to Hebrews and notice Hebrews 11 and verse 6, a very key scripture that we all know, 11, uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It says here, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there's no, there's nothing wrong with expecting a reward for having faith and demonstrating faith for following God. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, that's one of the proofs that you believe God. But, as it says in verse 9 here in Hebrews 11, By faith he dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And so, because God told Abram and Abraham, as he's named here, to dwell in this land, he simply obeyed. But it was based on something concrete. Now, this was not his native land. And as it intimates here, he never settled in any one place. He lived in tents, ready to move at any time. And this aspect of a nomadic lifestyle reflects the pilgrimage calling of God's people, which is a theme in this chapter of Hebrews 11. It's all through it. Let's read verse 10 now. He says in the end of verse 9, he, he dwelt there with the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He waited. And other translations translate that as looked forward to a more permanent city. You see, he wasn't tied to the here and now. He looked forward for the city, and notice it says the city, and not just a city, for a particular city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, the New Testament indicates that many Old Testament patriarchs knew more about aspects of God's plan then that was was generally revealed in the Old Testament stories. And it's quite possible that God had, may have revealed the heavenly Jerusalem to Abraham, to Abraham, and that may be why he waited and knew that there was a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. But regardless of whether he knew that or not, he believed in that. He had faith in that. And so here's the first key to successfully handling the challenge of living our lives while keeping God's future promises in mind. Key number one, we must look beyond the here and now. We must look beyond, look forward from this life. Look beyond the here and now, because that is hard to do. Many other translations say he waited, was looking forward. In the senses of Abraham looked beyond this present society, his present society, to a much better one, whose builder or the architect or the planner is and maker is God, that God is going to bring and establish and set up. Now, here's the point. Looking beyond this life is a challenge. For all of us. I think we all have to admit that. I have to admit that. And hopefully you can see that too. It's a challenge because our lives are so full. We fill them up with all sorts of things. And it's also a challenge because it's hard to picture what I has not seen. We've not seen it. We don't know exactly how it's going to be. I believe it was Mr. Long yesterday encouraged us to think about it through the senses, the smells, the tastes, how it would feel, 
and all of that. Well, that's good, but it's still hard to do, hard for me to do, and I suspect it's hard for some of you to do as well, to picture what eye has not seen nor ear heard. But God has helped us out because we have had the future promises revealed to us through scriptures such as Micah 4, beginning in verse 1. So let's turn there to Micah, one of the minor prophets, Micah 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 7. And this is what we're here to picture and to look forward to. As the fulfillment of these days, Micah 4, verse 1, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. That is not the world today, but this is future, and it says it will come to pass. Verse 4, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And every time you see a phrase like that, that means it will happen. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can bank on it. But we see peace and prosperity and safety and all the things that we don't have today. Verse 5, for all the people walk in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord of our, our God forever and ever. Verse 6, and in that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted, and I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. We're here to picture those days, to look forward to those days, to Focus on the fulfillment of these promises. And it's a wonderful time for us to do that. It's an appropriate time. It's the right time to do that. It would be wrong for us not to do that at the Feast of Tabernacles. But notice we're all here together, away from our homes, assembled to focus on these things by God's design. And remember, one of the most important reasons to keep this feast is to help us to look beyond the here and now. And passages such as this show us the fulfillment of God's future promise. After Jesus Christ returns at the last trump and our adversary is cast into the bottomless pit and the establishment of God's law becomes the norm, the results over time will be dramatic. And no matter how you slice it, God reveals that that life will be so much better for the people living at that time. Let's also notice Isaiah 25, and let's read verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 25. Beginning in verse 6. Wonderful scriptures like this, which we'll hear more of in future messages here at the feast, as we've already heard. Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 8. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, and of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces." The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, this is talking about the millennium, of course, but also beyond that. What God has in store for the future, that are promises now, unfulfilled promises now, no one has 
experienced this yet. But they are the promises in which we are to have faith. That we are to see beyond our present life. That it's going to be so much better. Now you can choose to believe this or not. That is your choice. And some of you may not believe this will happen. Perhaps that's because you need more proof than just words on a page, but that's where faith comes in. And this brings us to the second key to successfully handling the challenge of living our lives while keeping God's future promises in mind. Key number two, our faith in God's promises. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. We already read this before, but let's read it in this context. And we can just stop there at the beginning. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible, impossible to please him. It is impossible to do any of this without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, which is the first starting point of believing God. You have to believe he exists. You have to prove that to yourself. There are many ways to do that, but for each individual, they have to make a choice. Is there a God or not? And is this his word? And are these promises something I can have faith in? Because I believe there is a God and I believe that this is his word. And so if if we believe that, then these promises are real, or they should be, because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Our faith in God's promises is the essential element that's necessary to catch the vision of what I has not seen, because we have not literally seen it. Not a single one of us. So we have to have faith in these promises. We have to have faith in those scriptures that I read, that they will come to pass. Faith is required to believe that. And to live your life accordingly. In fact, what's interesting is believing in what you can't see, and what you cannot see, is part of the definition of faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but notice what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is always in the future. The evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. The invisible. We have not seen the kingdom. Not a single one of us. But that's what faith is all about. This is why the things in which we have faith cannot be proven using scientific methods. And that's a non-starter for many people, perhaps billions of people. That's where it ends. If you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. But it's also the difference as to whether one believes God or not, as our spiritual forefathers did, as it said in verse 2. For by it, by faith... The elders obtained a good testimony. And then it goes on to to list all of the people who lived by faith, which is why this is the faith chapter. They lived their lives the same as we do. They were human beings, as we heard in the song, the same as we are. They had their obligations. They had their relationships. They had their physical pursuits. They had all of that that we do. And they also had faith. This aspect of basing our hope on what we do not see separates those with living faith and those without who live their lives based on the promises. We read these promises and really this is all we have. (laughs) These promises, we read these and, and we talk about them. But right now they're just promises. But they were promises to Abraham too. And he's listed here as one of the giants 
of faith. Keep your place here in Hebrews 11, and let's go over to John 20, and, and notice this story of one who was skeptical, but I want to focus on what Jesus Christ said as a summary statement that applies to any of us. John 20, and let's read verses 24 through 29. You'll recognize this story as we get to it. John 20, verse 24. I was in Matthew twenty twenty four, and it didn't look familiar. So I'll get to John 20 and verse 24. You're already there. You know this story. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So this was after he was his death and resurrection. And so he said to them, Unless I see his hands in his hands, the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I need scientific proof. Are some of us like that? It's easy to be that way. When when you're so tied to this life, it's like this lectern here. We all know it's there. I can feel it. I can touch it. I can smash my toe with it. I can do all sorts of things with it. I know it's reality. No faith involved. And so Thomas had this mindset. Unless I can prove it physically, I'm not going to believe it. And it's so amazing how bold he is. I will not believe. (laughs) I'm just, I'm not going to believe. I don't care what you guys say. I haven't seen it. I haven't done these things, and we can be that way. Let's go on in verse 26. And after eight days, interesting that there's a period of time here that goes between this. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them this time. And Jesus, all of a sudden, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said to them, Peace to you. And you can imagine how... I would love to have been there. This would have been great to see. All of a sudden, he's just standing there, and he just says, peace to you. That would have been awesome. And then he said to Thomas specifically, because he knew what Thomas thought and possibly what he said. I will not believe. So he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here, reach it, put put it here, touch me. And put it into my side. If that's what you need to believe, do it. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so obviously, after having done that, done the the scientific method, (laughs) verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, I believe. But notice what Jesus said in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so when we read about the the promises in Hebrews 11... This is our choice. Do we believe them or not? Because faith is the difference. When we read about the coming kingdom of God, even though not a single person, living or dead, has actually seen it, those with faith in God's promises believe it's going to be reality as much as this lectern is. In fact, you could call God's promises of the kingdom a higher reality because it's going to last forever. Let's notice what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, section of scriptures, passages. Because it speaks to this very dilemma that we have. 2 Corinthians 4, 
Beginning verse 16 says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man, the spiritual man is being renewed day by day. And you know this, you're getting older, your body's wearing out. It has more aches and pains as you get older. You know this very well. We all know this. Perhaps the younger people can't comprehend this, but it will happen. If you live long enough, it will happen. Your outward man is perishing, but the inward man, the spiritual man, is growing and being renewed day by day because of such things like this. Our belief in things like this. Verse 17, for our light affliction, which doesn't seem all that light all the time, which is but for a moment, and it doesn't seem like it's just for a moment. It could be going on for years, but in the light of eternity, it is just a moment. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look, there's that sight thing again. We do not look at the things which are seen. That's not what our focus is on. That's not what our hope is in. It's not what we base our faith in. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. They will be gone. But the things which are not seen, the kingdom of God and everything that we're focusing on during this feast are eternal. Will last forever. Do we believe that or not? Having faith in God's future promise is what drove so many of God's people through the ages. It's what helped them through their challenges and their trials in their lives. The same as it should for us. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 and let's read verse 13 this time. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. They lived their lives. And then they died. As it says here, Hebrews 11 and verse 13, these all died, but notice, in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. None of these men and women of faith received God's promise of inheriting a better world during their lifetimes. But they believed in it to their last breath. But they saw them, as it says here, afar off. They had a vision of them. They believed in them. Afar off means in the distance. And they were assured of these promises. It spurred them on. It kept them going. The same as it should be for us. Yes, we live our lives. And yes, they are full. And yes, they are focused on so many temporary things. But we've got to have a vision of the future promises of God. As they did. These people were successful. That's why they're in this book. But we see this is the reason they were successful. This verse reveals the third key to successfully handling the challenge of living our lives while keeping God's future promises in mind. Key number three, confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Confess means to acknowledge openly and embrace that. Yes, we are the first fruits. We have been called out of this world. And we've been given very precious knowledge to understand this. Some may take that as we think of ourselves as elitist. It's not that at all. As the Bible says, he calls the weak of the world to confound the others. But to confess that you're a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth, which is what these people did, that's what it says here in verse 13, it means not being ashamed of being different. Embracing that. 
being called of God and having his knowledge. Notice the two verbs used here in verse 13, assured and embraced. They assured means to be convinced and to believe. And embrace means to welcome and to receive gladly. Do we do that? Are we so thankful to God that we have this precious knowledge? That we're here at the feast to focus on these things. What a beautiful picture it portrays for our future. And not only our future, but the entire world and everyone who's ever lived. These people understood that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. A stranger means a foreigner. Someone from another place. And a pilgrim is not simply one who is passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to or among the native people. And this is how we should feel in our neighborhoods. That we're not the same as them. We don't look down on them at all because we've just been called at a different time. But we are not the same as they are. Because of this calling, we are pilgrims on this earth. Strangers in a strange land, as Abraham saw himself among the Canaanites. And looking beyond the here and now is a key element of enduring faith. And that's why those who try to hold on to their life in this world will struggle. If you're desperately hanging on to your life right now, you're going to struggle. It's going to be much harder than if you just accept this isn't it. This is not it. I'm looking ahead. I'm looking forward to something I cannot see. I have faith in that. And that's where my hope is. Do we confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth? Let's read verse 14, Hebrews 11, verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek means to crave for, to wish for. And it implies that they aren't satisfied with where they are. And homeland is one's fatherland, one's own country. For us, this is the United States for most of us. But it's for whatever country you're a native citizen of. They seek a homeland, but in verse 15, and truly, if they had called to mind that country which they had come out, the literal physical country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. Any one of us can turn back. And some of our loved, loved ones, brethren we used to sit side by side with at the feast, have turned back. But, as they did in verse 16, they, but they, but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A heavenly country doesn't mean that they go to heaven. The Greek word can mean of heavenly origin or nature, which is what it means. And we see the fulfillment of this in Revelation 21 and verse 1. Let's go there now. One of the most inspiring scriptures in the Bible. Because this is looking past the millennium onto the rest of the promises of God, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, where the apostle John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The same as he wanted with the, with the tabernacle put right in the middle of the children of Israel, he's going to dwell among his people then. The ultimate fulfillment of God being their God and the city prepared for them. And God is not ashamed to be the God of those who embrace their calling as strangers and pilgrims now, as we read in Hebrews 11. I believe what we've covered in Hebrews 11 helps us to understand what it takes for God's people to successfully handle the challenge of living our lives while keeping God's future promises in mind. 
And to reiterate the three keys gleaned from this section, key number one, we must look beyond the here and now. Key number two, our faith in God's promises. And key number three, confess that we are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Let's now go back to the scripture where we began to notice that God's promise goes beyond the millennium. We just read about that here in Revelation 21, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 and reread that scripture. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. I believe we spent enough time focusing on the first part of the verse. So let's now focus on the second part of the verse. Nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What this part says to me is that we haven't even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, we do know quite a bit from what God has revealed to us in his word as Verse 10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit to a certain extent. But as Paul also says, we see through a glass darkly. So it's not completely clear and he hasn't revealed everything that he has in store for us. One thing about God is God reveals what we need to know when we need to know it, but not before. And so there's more. And I think that implies that that's implied here in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9 that the things that God has prepared for those who love him have not entered into the heart of man or in the mind of man. We've recently in many of the congregations, I think in all of the congregations that I am the pastor for, we often have discussions after services. We get the chairs out and sit around and talk about things. We talk about biblical things. And and I think it's come up with the brethren, every congregation I serve. What happens after Revelation 22? (laughs) And it's interesting that that's been a common theme that has been brought up recently. It's on people's minds, which is a good thing. But I can't answer that. And you can't answer it either. We don't know, as Mr. Frizz said yesterday, what is going to happen after Revelation 22. Because it has not entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But he has prepared them. But no matter what, I believe it's going to be so much better than this life in a way that we simply cannot comprehend with our limited imaginations. And I hope we not only believe this, all of us not only believe this, but that we live our lives looking beyond what we see in the here and now. Let's turn to Romans 8, which is known as the Holy Spirit chapter. Romans 8. And let's read verses 18 through 25. And let's notice something that is revealed here, which is just mind-boggling. Romans 8, and very humbling. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you just stop right there and consider what that means. But let's go on. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjection to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of the sonship, the redemption of our bodies for the change in which we have faith. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. There's that element of being seen or not seen, the invisible. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. With whatever we have to go through in this life. We have to believe it is worth it. Even though we don't know exactly. Because the mind can't comprehend it. We know. Because God's preparing it. It's going to be awesome. There is that element of having faith in what we do not see. In verse 25. And as God's faithful people throughout the ages have always done, that is what we must do. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 one more time. And this time let's go to verse 39. And let's read verses 39 and 40. Hebrews 11. Verse 39, kind of the summary statement of the chapter, after going through all of the Faith Hall of Fame, men and women who live their lives in faith, died in faith, it says here in verse 39, Hebrews 11, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, not a single one of them. And partly because of verse 40, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So the plan is still being worked and we're included in that plan. And how awesome is that? And what we read in, in Romans 8, that includes us. It's so incredible to think about that. Because I'm afraid we don't think about it enough. Because we're so filled with this life. All these things are so super important to us right now. We expend so much more energy in that stuff than focusing on this. There are too many distractions. And there's more now than ever, probably. It is hard. It's hard to look ahead and believe in these promises the way God, I think, wants us to, expects us to. But as we read here, not a single one of these people who live their lives in faith received the promise. So it's still yet future. And part of that is because the resurrection has not yet happened. So let's rehearse that again. First Thessalonians 4. You know, we can come to the point where truths like this, First Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18, we take for granted. But our hope is in this. We so desperately hope for this to happen to us and our loved ones. We read these scriptures, usually on the, at the Feast of Trumpets, or at other times through the year, and certainly at every funeral. But let's not read this just as this happening to someone else. But all that we read in Romans 8, Hebrews 11, personalize this. 
as this is your reality. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Asleep in the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Not necessarily in the air, but with the Lord from that point forward. And it ends with this very beautiful sentence in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But I hope they're more than comforting to us. For loved ones who have already gone ahead in this situation. But that we see this as comforting to us in that this is our future reality. This is part of the promise that God holds out to us. That has not yet been fulfilled for us. It's yet future. We've not seen this, nor is ear heard, but the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I believe it's going to happen. And when this change happens, notice Paul's description of how vastly better our lives will be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. So let's go there now to the resurrection chapter. But let's just read verses 42 through 44 in this context. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 42. Mr. Frizz read this yesterday. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead, the body, your body, my body, right now in the flesh, as it is now in this present reality, is sown in corruption. But in the future, it is raised in incorruption. That hasn't happened yet. It's part of the promise of God. It's something we look forward to. Eyes not seen, nor ear heard, but we believe this. Verse 43. Our body now is sown in dishonor. It is raised in the future in glory. It is now in weakness. It is raised in power. It is right now a natural body, a physical body, flesh and blood. But it will be raised a spiritual body. These are part of the promises that we may take for granted, that we should not. But they also should be the promises that motivate us to live a godly life. To keep us on track through all the future trials. And as we saw yesterday, some of you have been doing this for over 50 years, 60 years. That's a long time to stay on track. And I commend all who have done that. And it's just inspiring to see people enduring that long. But I believe that part of the reason they have is because of everything we've been talking about. That they believe and they have faith in God's promises. And they are the same as those who came before who are listed in Hebrews 11. And that's all before us. Some of the people who kept the feast last year are not with us anymore. Breaks my heart. Because I know these people. Love these people. Miss these people. Spend hours with these people. 
They're not with us. Who won't be with us next year? None of us knows the challenges we will all face. But it happens. For those of us who were there, heard Mr. Armstrong thunder more than once toward the end of his life, I don't believe even 10% of you are converted. And we all looked around and thought, who's he talking about? These people have been here for years. I've been here for years. We're all in this together. We all have faith. We all have gone through so much. We've all proven that this is the true church. We've all proven that we're following that God with these promises. We've all done that, right? Who's he talking about? 10%? Are you kidding me? But I remember being in the feast in Tucson, Arizona with 10,000 people. Where are they? It's part of the challenge that we all face year by year, over and over and over again. We're not playing games. The stakes are eternal. But part of what's going to determine whether we make it or not are the things that we've been talking about. Do we have faith in God's promises? We have to look beyond this life or we will become embroiled and entangled in things that can take us out. And Satan knows what those things are. He's a master at bringing those things out and making them so big in our lives that we bail on God. I has not seen Yet, God's future promise. 1 John 2, in verse 25. I love how simple this is, how plain it is. And perhaps we should all just mark this and memorize what this says. And keep it in the forefront of our minds. 1 John 2 1 John 2 and verse 25. 1 John 2 and verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised you and me. Eternal life. Not eternal life in the flesh, thankfully. Because that would be torture. But as we've read, a spiritual body. And this will be, well, this will be just the beginning of what God has in store for us. And what's it going to be like to live forever in a spirit body? I don't know. And you don't know. But I trust God when He says that it has not entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I hope we all believe this. So while we continue living our lives now, I sincerely hope we don't think this is it. And I sincerely hope that we aren't so wrapped up in this life that we don't take the time to deeply consider the value of God's promise. That's one of the important reasons to keep the Feast of Tabernacles is to give us a vision of what God has promised all of us for the future. And through his word, God has revealed that he has so much more planned for you and me. What an awesome, loving, and merciful God who has called us and opened our minds to understand these truths. These precious truths. But as we've seen, there's much more to come. Because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. 